but the score is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, <laughs> verses 13 to 15. Please, can you turn there now? If you happen to be using an electronic version, I'll be working from the New King James Version. And we're also going to be looking quite a bit at Psalm 116 a bit later. So it would be a good idea to have a marker or a finger in there now. But before we start, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to the message within it so that we can live and love as people who are saved by your grace. We ask this. Amen. Before we start to read, I'd like to ask you a question. And then... We seem to be coming and going a bit. motivates you to carry on when things are tough. And I don't just mean really tough. I'd ask you to hold uh, Perhaps I should just change to The story is this. Testing, testing, 1,999,999. Right, so I'd like to ask you a question and tell you a story. And the question is, what motivates you to carry on when things are tough? I mean... Really tough. I'd ask you to hold that thought. The story is this. I've recently re-watched a movie entitled Hacksaw Ridge, and perhaps you've seen it too. It's set during the American invasion of Okinawa during the Second World War, and it concerns a young man named Desmond Doss, who was a fervent Seventh-day Adventist. Because he is so, he refuses to carry or use a weapon or firearm of any kind. But this doesn't mean that he's not prepared to serve his country on the battlefield. He chooses instead to become an unarmed combat medic. And this integrity causes him many, many difficulties in basic training where he is constantly mocked and tormented by both his fellow recruits and instructors. Nevertheless, he stays his course and goes to war. He's assigned to the 77th Infantry Division and he's deployed into the Pacific Theater and his unit is charged with ascending and securing the Mida Escarpment, which is known by the troops as Haxel Ridge. Now, to say that this was a bloody battle is a grave understatement. Despite modern movies pulling few punches when it comes to very confrontationally depicting the horror of war, I am certain that the image is far less assaulting to the senses than the reality. It was, and it is, truly awful. 
Now, although the, the Americans initially achieved their objective with heavy losses on both sides, the Jap Japanese counterattack the following morning and they drive them back off the escarpment. But Doss does not leave. He returns and begins carrying his wounded comrades one by one back to the top of the cliff and then lowering them painfully to their comrades below on a rope. And all the while, he is in constant mortal peril from the Japanese snipers. And he's working in a blasted and chaotic wasteland that's been created by naval bombardment with heavy guns, and he's surrounded by the bloody and broken bodies of both friend and foe. Now, as depicted by the movie, his actions seem both incredible and superhuman. So it's easy to dismiss what you see as just another case of Hollywood sensationalism. But it isn't. The most incredible thing about this movie is that, although, as usual, Hollywood did edit the story for effect, Desmond Doss really was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Harry S. Truman for rescuing no less than 75 soldiers off Hacksaw Ridge. And he died on March the 23rd, 2006, at the age of 87. So this, friends, wasn't the creative result of a scriptwriter's pen. It really happened. And if we ask ourselves why and how he did such a great thing, it's impossible to separate his actions from his faith. Well, today we're going to read about another heroic man, Saul of Tarsus, known to us as the Apostle Paul, who served and suffered on another kind of battlefield and who also played a part in saving the lives of many others. And whilst his exp explanation of what spurred him on to do so will help us both today and in the days ahead, there is a surprise ending, because we will see what must happen when both the author and means of rescue is properly understood. So let's read then 2 Corinthians 4, 13 to 15. But as usual, I'm going to start a little bit earlier, back in verse 7, because that's where it, our, our um, story today begins. It's titled, Cast Down but Unconquered. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then... Death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Now I'm going to begin by going even further back in this book because it's helpful for us to see the whole picture. You know, Paul has not had an easy time. He has not slept in, had a cup of coffee and bacon and eggs over the newspaper and then ridden his pedigree donkey with custom goat leather saddle off to the synagogue for a bit of leisurely evangelism, followed by a spot of lunch and other snooze 
and then Bible study with the youth group in the evening. Quite the opposite. In chapter 1, he writes of such hardships that he literally fears for his life. In chapter 2, he writes of the distress and anguish in his heart because of the problems that he is hearing about in Corinth. In chapter 3, he must defend his character against the accusations of the Judaizers who hate him and his message and will do almost anything to discredit both. And then in the build-up to today's particular text here in chapter 4, he mentions that he often feels hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. So much for the leisurely breakfast. Now it's possible that when we look at this book in this way, to say that perhaps Paul is a bit too self-absorbed and he could more profitably use his audience's time by explaining some new and interesting things about God's character and nature. Well, to take this viewpoint is wrong because it misrepresents Paul's intentions and completely misses the valuable lessons here. Worst of all, it excludes the fact that this is Scripture. The Holy Spirit, God himself, telling his story through the inspired writing of a human. So if that's Paul, that's his situation, how about the church that he is writing to? Well, the church at Corinth is struggling with the same forces that have assailed Paul. They aren't having it easy and they need direction and encouragement so as to know how to deal with it. And most importantly, to deal with it as God would have them do. Now, for sure, Paul could have used allegory in his teaching to help them. In other words, a story with a moral, moral meaning that's a little hidden. However, the impact of once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away is a lot less believable than a lesson that is based on personal experience. You know, an audience can always tell when you are exaggerating for effect. And that's something that I've personally experienced both from this pulpit and in other parts of my life. A long time ago, my first real job was as a salesman, and as part of my comprehensive induction course, I was given a small book on sales technique. And by the way, that was where the comprehensive part began and ended. Naturally, a lot of the book had to do with the use of open and closed questions to establish need so that one can demonstrate features and benefits and thereby make a sale. But it also included a little nugget about how personal experience sells above all things. And I've never forgotten that because it's true for so many things in life. In sales back then, I soon learned that it's one thing to be able to explain the technical benefits of an oil, and that was my field of play, but it was much better to have used it and to have seen the results for yourself in a customer's um, premises. The words you used might be the same, but there was some extra powerful, intangible benefit from having been there and really done it, and it made all the difference to how much the customer believed what you were saying. And I think this is one reason why Paul has included these snapshots of his own experience in the first part of this letter. They are here to lend authority to his teaching, but they should also cause us to wonder how on earth did that fellow keep going? Well, for an answer, let's have a look at today's specific verses since we have gone a little way since we saw them earlier. I'll read them to you again. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, 
I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, will cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Okay, let's just dive a little deeper in here to see what we can learn. I like going to the New Living Testament because although it's not a direct translation, it does put things a little more clearly. It says, But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. Well, the first question that jumps out for me here is, why is Paul referring back to a psalmist? Well, it turns out that this quote here, I believed in God, so I spoke, is a link back to Psalm 116, verse 10. Why did he quote that? Let's read the psalm. Now, I'm sorry the overhead's a little bit squashed, but you'll see that we need to see the whole thing at once. And it's titled, Thanksgiving for Deliverance from Death. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me, and therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O oh my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. I've read the whole thing because there are some common threads in what we are looking at today. Now I'll quickly try to dissect that so you can see those. Well, firstly, there's the obvious great distress and danger that the psalmist is in that almost drove him to despair. And this is reflected in verses 3, 10, and 11. An example, the pangs of Sheol, I am greatly afflicted, all men are liars. And therefore he calls out in verse 4, O Lord, I implore you, Deliver my soul. Well, that sounds a lot like Paul's problems, doesn't it? What is the Lord's response? Well, God hears and inclines his ear to him. Verses 1 and 2. The Lord takes pity on him. Verses 5 and 6. And then delivers him. Verse 8. You have delivered my soul from death. 
And again, we can see this is pretty much the same as, as Paul. What is the psalmist's response to the Lord's gracious deliverance? Well, the first few are things that are inside him. They're not necessarily visible. He will love God, verse 1. He will continue to call on him, verses 2, 13, and 17. Rest in him, verse 7. And lastly, he will walk before him, verse 9. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And the second half of that particular verse is very important. When we read in the land of the living, it provides the link to a public and visible response to the grace of God. And we can see just that in verse 14. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. And similarly in verses 18 and 19, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, all Jerusalem. And that's all summed up very nicely by verse 10 in 2 Corinthians. I believed, therefore I spoke. Which is exactly why Paul, as a scholar of the scriptures, picked it to illustrate his point. Since God has done so much for the psalmist in hard times, he will give thanks in public. Similarly, Paul, he has experienced hard times too. The Lord has kept him safe too. He will also tell everyone about his deliverance, but particularly as we read, these oppressed Corinthians so that they too can deal with the pressure. So our text today is all about being sure to make public testimony about the Lord's grace. Except, when I was constructing this sermon, at this point, my intention was to kind of wrap things up from here with some moralizing about why that's true for us today. If you're in trouble, call on the Lord and he will help you. But don't forget to tell others. Faith without action is dead as we are reminded by James. And whilst that approach is true, and probably no one would have noticed because I'm such a brilliant preacher, there is, as I said at the beginning, a surprise ending, which is very important. So, no moralizing. There's a change of direction that's needed here. So far we've looked at the similarities between the psalm and today's text, but the important lesson lies in a difference. The main point of difference between the psalm and this letter becomes apparent as soon as we read on from verse 13. Whilst the psalmist's responses to God's grace are entirely framed within the terms of the old covenant, the law, Paul's are focused on the new, salvation through Christ. So let's read again to see this. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. New covenant. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many, new covenant again, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Well, that's never changed through any covenant and never will. There are some other differences too. Another significant variation is that whilst the psalm sings to the tune of a result of a personal blessing from God, the beneficiaries of the second Corinthians text are firstly God and then people other than Paul. The and them, 
not I, me, or thee. We must also include context. You will recall, you will recall, I hope, our look back through earlier chapters two hours ago to establish the extent of Paul's sufferings. And this is just one of the common themes so far. The most important being Paul's efforts to show how much better salvation through Christ is than the condemnation of the law. And much of chapter 3 is taken up by that. Here's an example, verses 9 to 11. If the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Well, such an important argument is not something that you're just going to keep to one part of the letter and then move on to other things. Because it's the very center of Paul's defense against the Judaizers. Yes, God gave Israel the law. Yes, God is good, and so his law is good. That cannot ever be denied. But what he has given to both Israel and the Gentiles now through the death of Jesus is far, far better. It's like this. It's true that wheat bix will nourish you. And it must be true since it is apparently the so far undiscovered secret to every all-black success. Maybe they didn't have some for breakfast yesterday. That said, bacon, eggs, tomato, hash brown, sausage and fried tomato do the same job and are considerably more interesting. So, why would anyone go back to paying for wheat bicks when you can have free bacon and eggs forever? There's another illuminating link that demonstrates the superiority of salvation in Christ. If we carry on reading to verse 12, we find out what we are reading today in chapter 4 is a repetition and therefore reinforcement of what has been said already. It reads, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. And it sounds just like what Paul has written here. I believed, and therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore speak. What is being repeated between these two chapters is the conviction of a new and better way to God, obtained only through Jesus, with the consequent promise of an eternal and intimate relationship with God. Although Paul is our model, that very same conviction enables every single follower of Christ to stand in the face of trial and speak. So, what shall we say? And more importantly, how shall we say it? If we only acknowledge inside ourselves that we like the eternal bacon and eggs much more than the temporary wheat picks, is that really enough? Well, the answer is this, no, never. If we ask God to help us, he will, and we will feel better. That is his blessing, and he loves to bless his children. But it shouldn't end there inside us. His help has a far larger and more worthy goal. It is that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. When I say, help me, Lord, his response will never be different to his eternal promises. 
and purposes which are our good and his glory. Our good, not just my good. He will surely be good to me along the way, but his eye is on the crowd of witnesses that surround me. He wants me to be his instrument of righteousness, to believe and speak, so that his name may be glorified and that those witnesses may be persuaded to take Jesus as Lord. And why not? Who made us and everything around us? Who tends it moment by moment if we succeed or persevere? Where do those talents and strength all come from in the very beginning? Well, they come from our Father in heaven, not us. He is the wonderful one. And he must be recognized as such. So, this is the message that I nearly missed. When beset by Judaizers or whatever modern variation of persecution or strife that may assault you, don't let it become all about yourself. And I understand that may be excruciatingly difficult. For when you are up to your belly button in a swamp filled with crocodiles, it's very hard to remember that your only objective was to drain the swamp. And some very big crocodiles happened to Christians. Their bite hurts so much, and so we cry out to the Lord, Help me! He answers. Maybe not exactly when or how we hope, but he will sustain us and keep us. He will never let us go. We will come out the other side, although often with decorative tooth marks. But when we do, the message should not be, look at me, I did a hard thing. It must be, look at him, look to him. If I am here and whole and saved, it is only because he is my strength, my deliverer, my portion. My song. So tell those witnesses around you, take him too, so that their thanksgiving may be added to yours. But, but here's the thing, for the Lord and the Lord alone is the glory. Speak because you believe, but speak of thee, not me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that all too often we become overwhelmed with ourselves. And we forget you. We forget all that you have done for us, that you do for us, and that you will do for us. We forget the purpose you have for us. Oh Lord, forgive us. And I pray, through your Holy Spirit, remind us who deserves the glory and why we ought to speak of it out loud and why we ought to live it out loud. May we do so in the days ahead for your glory and so that others may also have cause for thanksgiving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.